You're listening to DraftKings Network. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So LeBron extended for two years. Actually, call it one. Second year's a player option. I mean, we recorded last week's episode right before this news dropped, but what's the most important thing to come out of this extension? That this fraud Mike Sure. Who the hell does he think he is? Just a television creator. Where does he get off? Some of the greatest content we've ever had. Ken Tremendous, Fire Joe Morgan. This guy. You know what? Hey, let me tell you something, Mike Sure. Let me break something down to you, all right? If you're listening, which he does, by the way, this guy. Oh, oh, I was, I heard this thing. Oh, it's funny how Amin said this and then instantly the LeBron news broke. It was never about the LeBron news. It was trying to figure out what's going to happen to Bronny. I'm just sick and tired of people like Mike Schur making hot takes based off snippets of conversation. You know what? I'd like to extend an invitation to Mike Schur to enter the temple. To enter the dojo right here on Basketball Illuminati and debate us. Welcome to the Thunderdome. The OKC Thunderdome. Wait, what was his contention? Oh, that we got it wrong. What, that LeBron James is extending right until Bronny James can be an NBA player? That's what I said. It all adds up. I was throwing out the scenario like maybe he's waiting to see how the age limit thing goes. Mean hosts the Levitard show for two days and all of a sudden he's... Big time in Mike Sure. This guy. He's also a listener. Sure is. One thing if he's taking pot shots at us without actually reading the content or watching the content or listening to the content, we've had a lot of those people over the years taking shots at us after not even reading or watching or listening, but he actually consumes it and you're still going at the guy. Maze, are you proud of yourself? Sure am. My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs> This is Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I am joined by my five-star 
Basketball Illumin Army Generals, Amin El Hassan, and Anthony Mays, our producer. Fellas, we got lots to get into this week. We have an exclusive interview with the Tim Donaghy expert. The real expert. He wrote a book about Tim Donaghy, literal book about the whole scandal, and I'm holding it right here. Gaming the Game, the story behind the NBA betting scandal, and the gambler who made it happen by Sean Patrick Griffin. He's going to join us because there's a documentary coming out on Netflix about Tim Donaghy, and we have some things to get down on the record and set straight before you watch that. But first... You are listening to The Agenda... With Tom Haverstrow and Amin El Hassan. We have breaking news here. I was on the radio doing a hit while this news dropped, Amin Mays, and I had to answer live on the air what I thought about this news. It is an official statement from the Brooklyn Nets. The following statement has been released by General Manager Sean Marks, in all caps. And here is the statement Steve Nash and I. Together with Joe Tsai and Clara Wu Tsai, met with Kevin Durant and Rich Kleiman in Los Angeles yesterday, that being Monday. We have agreed to move forward with our partnership. We are focusing on basketball with one collective goal in mind, build a lasting franchise to bring a championship to Brooklyn. Stamped Brooklyn Nets logo, the boardroom logo. Partnership. (laughs) So many thoughts. Running through my mind. So much to unpack, unwind, decode. First thought, Josiah's wife has replaced Kyrie Irving at the table. Oh, get out of here, Kyrie. That's big. Third eye Kai. Go bye-bye. How many fonts do you count in that press release, Tom? What's the big number of fonts? It's four. Four fonts. The big four. They've reassembled the big three. Ben Simmons, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant with four fonts. Keep your third eye open about the four fonts. We have the original, the first one, the following statement has been released by general manager Sean Marks with very spaced out, upper caps, all caps, and then some standard Calibri or Arial, something in there, double spaced with the statement. And then we get the B, the Brooklyn Nets logo B, which is in a different font. Then I believe the boardroom logo font is. So that's four. They're not Milwaukee, but they sure got the fonts. Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. The weekend comes, my cycle hops. Ready to race to you. These days are all happy Look, we have agreed to move forward with our partnership. My first reaction to this beyond the whole boardroom thing. You know what? That's my first reaction. What is the boardroom logo doing there? It's a partnership, Tom. Rich Kleiman's in the mention as well. The boardroom is a media company. It's two companies sitting down and coming together. You couldn't put Kevin Durant's signature on it or something? No, 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 no. That was for my next chapter. <laughs> this is a different era. So was this just all in an elaborate ruse to get more publicity for the boardroom? This whole saga just working its way up for the logo to be plastered on the biggest news story of the summer. If you think about it from a new media perspective, what storyline has dominated the summer? Kevin Durant's trade request sponsored by the boardroom, presented by the boardroom. 
Executive produced by The Boardroom. Brought to you by The Boardroom. It's like one of those credit rolls where you just see The Boardroom, The Boardroom, The Boardroom. That's what happened. You produced the hell out of this. I'm impressed. Yeah. One producer to another. Are you tipping your cap? As a producer, I salute (laughs) you, sir. Well done. The circuitous route through which we embarked on this journey. In reality, it started not too long after their unceremonious ouster in the first round, but it was officially kicked off on the eve of free agency and then dominated all of July and most of August. And here we are towards the back end of August. We arrive at a conclusion and the conclusion is, ah, never mind. This is after people's heads were called. This is after reports were out there that Kyrie Irving wouldn't set foot again in the arena. All of that all for us on August 23rd to be like, nah, we're good. But are we? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's one of those things where it feels like, even down to the resolution, the thing that happens when your significant other throws a tantrum. You're like, all right, fine. I don't care. I don't care if this continues. Do whatever. All right. Oh, you know, I might be dating. I download an app. And then at some point you realize they've calmed down just enough for you to be like, okay, all right. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do this Instagram post, me and you. (laughs) And even though I have 12 million followers and you have, you know, 12, (laughs) we're going to co-brand the thing. All of it smacks of pandering to the highest order. And I get it. I get it, man. What are you going to do? You're going to be risking in order to look like a big, tough organization? You say, no, we're not going to do that. No, you're going to go along with it. But the interesting thing for me was, guys, There was a weather balloon that went up that told us this was impending. Yeah. We all should have known it. When the news came out over the weekend that Udonis Haslam would be returning for his 20th season with the Miami Heat. Yep. What? What does that have to do with anything? I mean. So Udonis Haslam, we all know the Heat wanted him back in his role as mentor slash unofficial coach slash bodyguard for Eric Spolstra. But they wanted to keep a roster spot open in case they needed to facilitate some sort of mega trade to get Kevin Durant. So even though we all knew Udonis would be in a Miami Heat jersey opening night, he remained unsigned until over the weekend at his camp, he announces to everybody unprompted, yep, coming back, I'm going to sign a deal. I submit to you that the reason why we got closure on the Udonis Haslam situation was because the word was out that the Nets and Kevin Durant were not going to be parting ways, at least not anytime soon. And that's why we're here today. We all knew it. They told us without telling us. Unfortunately, most of y'all had closed third eyes. Going to open them up even more. I mean, Boardroom TV got an exclusive with none other Udonis Haslam. Oh, when was this? Sunday, August 21st. A conversation with Udonis has one more in Miami. He's running it back for one more season, his 20th in the NBA, all with his hometown heat. He spoke with the boardroom about what he's learned and cherished over the years and what's coming next. How about that? They're all together. The word was getting out. It's so funny how many times everything is laid out before us and we still struggle to read all the signs. It's like Chaz Palminteri's character 
in the usual suspects. After Kevin Spacey gets up and walks out and he looks at the cork board on the wall and he looks at his coffee mug and he looks and he's like, this guy was just pulling names off of things all in this room. Mm-hmm. It was there all along if we just paid attention. Open your eyes. Look around sometime. Kind of feel bad for Third Eye Kai. His logo wasn't on it. Do we ever settle on what it means? All even? All 11? <laughs> Going with 11. That's what I think it is. He was co-managing this franchise, arm in arm with Kevin. Yeah. How does he feel? When I say I'm, I'm here with Kev, I think that it really entails us, um, you know, managing this franchise together alongside Joe and, and Sean. And- how does he feel right now to be excluded from this statement? Well, that's the beauty of this lovely little situation is that it's far from over and now the microscope can shift back to ben simmons and kyrie irving and what to do with those two mercurial athletes will they be good will they be bad will they be upset only time will tell the nets are going to announce that ben simmons needs more time with his rehab from his back procedure and it's going to have the Nets logo and then what? The shop? Yeah. Uninterrupted? Are we entering a new era where I get it, the idea that, yes, you, when you're dealing with star players, it's a partnership with your star player. But a literal partnership with, like, their companies and their LLCs? Is that where we're headed? It does seem like we're all working our way. It's a progression on this winding road to the destination of players co-owning franchises. Doesn't it feel that way with Andre Iguodala, our friend over at Point Forward, has been talking a lot about this. Like, why can't players have a slice of ownership? And you talk about LeBron James extending for a couple years in LA. What about LeBron getting a slice of the Lakers? Maybe there was a backroom deal of like, yes, I'll extend. If this legislation with the CBA and everything changes, I can get a slice of the Lakers down the line. I'm not saying that conversation happened. I'm just asking questions. Why would LeBron do that? And I'm sitting here thinking, we're just working our way to that point where maybe Kevin Durant is like, that stamp is going to be on there because this is going to be a business partnership going forward. Straight up. All right, guys, I'm really excited for this. Our next guest is a professor of criminal justice at the Citadel, and he wrote the definitive, in-depth breakdown of the Tim Donaghy scandal. He spoke to FBI agents. He spoke to the co-conspirators. He went deep in the weeds. I don't know if you know this, Tom. Did you know in a former life our guest was a cop? In Philadelphia? Yes. He's done it all. He's seen it inside and out. His name is Sean Patrick Griffin. He wrote the book, Gaming the Game. And as you guys all get ready for this Netflix documentary that's going to come out next week about Tim Donaghy and that whole scandal, watch it with an immense grain of salt and a third eye. And definitely listen to this interview first before you do. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. 
Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity and the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. It keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man, you can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do something really outrageous. I'm gonna tell the truth. Sean Patrick Griffin, I am so glad to have you on the show. Welcome to Basketball Illuminati. Welcome to our Truth Teller series. It's been a long time coming. I've been waiting to have you on because you are the Tim Donaghy expert. You've written the book on Tim Donaghy, The Whole Scandal. You are the authority of record on the Tim Donaghy story. So thank you so much for joining us here on Basketball Illuminati. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's been a long time. Well, Amin Mays, his book is amazing. It's Gaming the Game, the story behind the NBA betting scandal and the gambler who made it happen. And you keep thinking that the Tim Donaghy story is just going to go away. And then just on August 8th, we find the trailer for the new Netflix documentary is released. And Sean, you must have been jumping for joy. You were so excited to see it, right? That was exactly my reaction, Tom. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> it's never ending. This thing is never ending. You saw it. And what was your reaction, Sean? Well, I don't know how much we want to go into this, but I actually knew about this for a long time. I had been contacted by the people who were producing it a long time ago. And it was never clear what they were going to do with it, but I was aware of the project. And so they interviewed me for a long time over multiple calls. I gave them documents. I gave them interview suggestions for the people they were going to interview. So I was aware of this for a long time. And you're not just someone who was sitting on their couch and interested in Tim Donaghy. What is your day job, Sean? I am professor of criminal justice at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. So you're telling me the producers, I'm guessing, read your book. And you're a professor in criminal justice and organized crime. You seem like someone who might be wanting to interview for this documentary. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> By the way, the audience needs to know, Tom and I have not talked about this. I'm answering these things on the fly. <laughs> when they contacted me, they had not read Game in the Game. They knew of Game in the Game and they knew of me. And that's what makes this so frustrating to me is that they spent a lot of time, energy, and money on this and contacted me without ever having a clue about the story or about the documents or any of that. Wait a second. So, hold on. Wait a second. I mean, hold this on. isn't even shtick. I mean, I had no idea about this. I, I can't believe this either. They sat in a room and said, you know what we should get? The guy who wrote the book on <laughs> Donahue and this whole Donahue scandal. The guy's a professor criminal justice at the Citadel, a prestigious university for the military, right? And they say, get him on the phone, get him on the phone. How quickly did you realize that nobody had actually read the book? Oh, it was immediate. <laughs> you don't even have to ask that question, of course. You know, you can just tell, but some of the things they're saying, and you go, wait a second, why are you asking me that question? And then, of course, there was actually a funny exchange where I gave them questions to ask of interview subjects. And you could tell their argument was, wait, why would we ask those? They had no idea. And that's why, look, I'm reasonable. Maybe we're all going to be surprised on August 30th. Maybe it's going to be incredible and we're not going to hear all the same old BS that we've heard for the last 10 years. But I have no sense of that. And I was part of the process. 
So, Sean, did you think that they were exploring areas that you had already thoroughly investigated, but kind of like in the dark, and that you saw them going down paths that you had already been down? Oh, you guys are killing me with this interview because, no, I wish that were the case. <laughs> Look, let's hope I'm wrong. But based on the promos and based on my conversations with the people involved in this, don't forget, the program is called Untold. Mm-hmm. And from what I can tell, there's not a thing we're going to hear that hasn't been told already. It's been told. Yeah. And so when you asked me if they were going down paths or avenues that I had gone down, I wish they were because that would be news to a lot of people. Looking at this trailer, I'm seeing some of the co-conspirators. So Tommy Martino, I think I see Baba in this, Jimmy Batista, who was, I think, the focus of your story. But you didn't just take Baba's word for it. Can you give the people just background information on who Batista is and why he was so important in your telling of this story. Sure. And by the way, I thank you for the way you characterize that because some people have painted Game in the Game as Batista's story. Anyone who reads the book realizes if that was the case, I could have written that book in three weeks or six weeks. It wouldn't have taken me three years traveling all over the country, getting all those documents, resources, interviewing all sportsbook managers, the FBI guys, the U.S. Attorney's Office people. Yes, it's the first time Batista spoke to the public, but I was the only person who actually spoke to all the people involved in the criminal justice investigation, trying to figure out what did they know, what didn't they know, why didn't they know that, and then figuring out questions that needed to be answered. The other part of your question, Tom, is that Jimmy Batista was a professional gambler. You mentioned earlier that I researched organized crime for a living. I took on this project back in 2008 because I had heard through the media, of course, that organized crime was involved. So I wanted to see the organized crime angle. So Batista was a professional gambler. For somebody like me, now you guys might know this, I was totally unaware of this world. He would literally, like a lot of his buddies, and I write all about this in Game in the Game, they would literally put on their IRS returns, professional gambler. (laughs) They literally claim it as a title. They're way more fearful of a tax evasion charge. And by the way, this is all pre-legalization of sports gambling, of course. I thought professional gambler, there's a great line in the book where the four guys are hanging out in a Denny's in Las Vegas. And one of the guys says, if people walked in here, these four fat slobs, that's their words, not mine, that they're manipulating lines around the world, no one would believe them. These are just regular schmoes. They do professional gambling for a living and they claim it for a title and they make very, very good livings. So that's who Batista was. And as you said, Tom, Batista was the professional gambler. Donaghy, of course, was the referee. And Tommy Martino was the third co-conspirator. He was best friends with Donaghy, still is to this day, by the way, which matters for the sake of the story. And Batista was friendly with Martino, but not with Donaghy. So they had this odd arrangement. They all knew each other from when they were little. What high school did they go to, by the way? Cardinal O'Hara. Oh, man. Oh, yes. That's a factory for NBA referees. If anyone ever sees Game in the Game, there's actually pictures from their yearbook of Cardinal O'Hara in the book. It's awesome. It's so good. And one of the things, I didn't know the whole code speak. So like when Tim Donnie wanted to tell Tommy Martino. The home team? The home team and away team. That's one of my favorite parts. So one of Martino's, his brother, Chuck, is out of state? Chuck was a local guy. So when he wants the home team to win, he would just talk about Chuck the whole time. You guys are joking about this. My students get a kick out of this because they say I'm passionate about my research. But when it comes to this, they say I'm animated about my research. And it's because of this. If people realized, don't forget, Donaghy's argument was that he wasn't fixing games, that he had inside information about the games. And that's why he was able to win successfully, right? Right. Well, 
He also says that he bet on more games that he didn't officiate than those he did, which would make sense if inside information really was the way that you were winning. Sure. But think about this, because you guys are just talking about the code. If he calls Tommy Martino and says, hey, I'm visiting mom tonight. It used to be mom and dad, by the way. Then it changed to the brothers. And he says, oh, you know, I'm seeing Chuck tonight. Well, Tommy Martino doesn't know which of the 12 games that are being played that night he's betting on. The code only works if it's Donaghy's games. No one caught that. As you know, Tom, I've exposed Donaghy in many different ways, but that's an easy one that you don't need access for all my stuff. Because otherwise the code would be too complex, right? You'd have to have 12 different home teams or up to 30. Or you'd have to say, I'm visiting Chuck in Arizona. I mean, you'd have to figure out some other way. No one even pretended that was the case. By the way, for the public doesn't know, Martino pleaded and cooperated with the feds, as did other pro gamblers, most of whom the public doesn't even know about. And everyone's in alignment on this. And even Donaghy admits to the code. So there's really no debate about that. So there's the games that Donaghy worked, and then there's games that he didn't work, that he was betting on, or at least Batista was getting action on. But only a few. Explain to people what Batista told you about his winning record, Tim Donaghy's record, on games that he was officiating versus ones that he was giving picks on games that he wasn't officiating. Sure. Well, the public needs to know that the only reason that Batista and all the pro gamblers got involved in this was because they saw the bets on Donaghy's games, games he was officiating. That was the only reason they were interested. And so when Donaghy gets approached by Batista in December of 06, Batista and all the pro gamblers have been betting on these games since 03. They've been copying the bets. Donaghy did not know that until Game in the Game came out in 2011. He had no idea what was happening. Whoa! Just so you know, I mean, the way it worked, Donaghy was betting with a friend of his who's just a regular guy, an insurance salesman, ironically. It has nothing to do with organized crime or gambling. Jack Cannon, right? Exactly. Jack Cannon, right? Well, Cannon was betting with a professional gambler named Pete Ruggieri. Pete didn't take him long to figure out that, wow, Jack Cannon bets X number of dollars on usual NBA games, mm-hmm. but man, on certain games, he's betting five grand and they're hitting at 78%. <laughs> Doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, wait, what is noteworthy about those games? What's the consistent thing? And of course, there were games refereed by Donaghy, and then they go, oh my gosh. And they knew that Donaghy knew Cannon. This is what's funny. We're talking about conspiracies. The professional gamblers assumed that there had been a deal cut between Cannon and Donaghy. But that actually wasn't true. It was just that Cannon was placing Donaghy's bets. Anyway, and so from 2003 until 2006, the pro gamblers are copying. And by the way, when I say copying, and Tom knows this, I'm saying millions of dollars every game around the world. And there's a great line in the book where they said, the quote is, there wasn't enough money in the market for what we were trying to do. It's crazy. And you have to understand how much work Sean did to explain the world of gambling. Like, Forget conspiracies and Tim Donaghy. This book is like a must for gamblers. If you're interested in the world of sports gambling, this book, you'll get just as much out of it if you know nothing about the NBA. Two mil? Man, I was carrying twice that in red ink before you even showed up. Look around you. Everything you see is smoke and mirrors. I got three mortgages on this house. What do you want to know? I'm gambling again. I want to take a step back from the particulars of the case and just ask you, Sean, you started the interview by saying, You knew nothing about the world of professional gambling. Mm -hmm. So how does one learn about this world in order to write a book about it? What were the steps that you took? A couple of things. First of all, having access to the pro gamblers. In Gaming the Game, you'll notice I don't actually identify all but a few. 
And the way it worked was like, so, if, I mean, you know, if you're actually a pro gambler, you say, okay, look, you can sit in my chair and you can watch what I'm doing, but you can't say it's me. Mm-hmm. And so I did that for, you know, a long time. And you could actually watch, you'll get a kick out of this. And again, this was new to me. They would say, watch this. I'm going to manipulate this betting line. <laughs> and they would literally sit there and they can actually target certain sports books. And the sports books know who they are. And if they say, oh my gosh, if this guy is betting X number of whatever, the line's going to move. But what the public never knows is they're doing that. And I actually describe this in detail, as Tom says in the book. A lot of times they'll start betting in Asia, which is 12 or 13 hours ahead of us, purposely on the other side of a proposition <laughs> to get the lines to move so that when Europe hits, it's six hours ahead of us. And by the time you and I wake up, or I do on the East Coast, and you read the New York Post or wherever the betting lines is, that's the line they wanted. Well, they started on that yesterday. It's like a wave. Yes. They start the ripple over here. They're going to bet 200 or 300 grand overseas to get the line to move. They're going to hammer it with 3 million on our side of the shore. By the way, this is funny because I watch this live. They play games with each other. They all know who each other are. And theoretically, they're competitors, but they're also buddies. And they'll say, watch this, because they sort of know each other's betting patterns. And they'll say, watch this. Tom's going to chase this. Watch this. And they'll play with Tom. And then they'll text them, hey, Tom, gotcha. (laughs) So like Baba, Jimmy Batista, he's paying Tim Donaghy like $2,000, $5,000 for winning picks. So if he says, hey, bet on the Celtics tonight, Baba is paying... Donaghy up to $5,000 per pick, I mean. But listen to how much Baba's making on the other side of that pick. Well, I don't know how much he was making, but his average bet was $2 million. (laughs) And by the way, there's another example. Donaghy did not know that until Game in the Game was published. The original deal was that he got paid $2,000 a bet and then it increased to $5,000 a bet. And Donaghy had no idea that that money was being chased all around the world. He was just betting for the guy he knew. So he did this for a couple extra thousand dollars here and there? Yes. He risked his career. He went to prison. These people were making millions and he was making 5K a pop. Yeah, he had no idea. Jesus Christ. Sean, let me just ask you point blank here for the listeners. Why didn't you just ask Tim Donaghy about all this stuff and include his perspective on all of these things? Great question. Well, first of all, in answer to Amin's question before, I also interviewed all the FBI guys, including their cryptographer. They actually have a guy who does crypto racketeering. And so when it comes to how they monitor money movements overseas, this case was about pro gambling. Now, this is a little in the weeds, but- We love the weeds. (laughs) We live in the weeds. Our habitat is the weeds. So please. This is the part I love because the FBI at the time didn't look at offshore sports books as a big deal. But because of gaming the game and all the work, they realized, wait a second, If these people can be betting money overseas, millions of dollars every day, and it's coming onshore, well, why couldn't drug dealers and terrorists use those offshore sports books as money laundering operations? So I interviewed the person who's in charge of that for gaming the game. And so he and I had a great relationship because we were both sort of comparing notes and I was helping him, he was helping me. But anyway, Tom, and answer your question, I wrote Game in the Game. I started in 2008. Donaghy's book came out in 2009. I bought the book. Yeah. I was a sucker like everybody else. I just thought, well, you know, you'd have to know. And it was unbelievable. You get through a handful of pages. You don't need access to the stuff I have access to to go, oh my gosh, this is fantasy land. It's not possible. He talks about the motivations of prosecutors, how the FBI conducted the investigation, motivations of that, things he couldn't know. Mm. And I think what happened, the public was so desirous of the conspiracy stuff that they ignored the things that were demonstrably false. And said, okay, these hundred things he either can't know or made up. But number 101, 
That's mine, baby. I've been believing that for 10 years. It's, you know, all confirmation bias. The Dick Pavetta's in the bag yeah, for all exactly, New York right? teams, right? And by the way, the other thing, too, is, look, I'm not an NBA fan, but I'm aware of the conspiracy theories. And do people not realize Donaghy doesn't pick on any other games or series that weren't already in the conversation for years? It's not like he picked a totally random series or a game where you're going to, well, that's real. I didn't know that. It's all the stuff that people were primed for. Right. In many ways, his book and his untruths, let's call them that. I call them falsehoods. <laughs> it aided the argument that David Stern made, which was, this is a rogue guy and he's just acting alone and, and allowed them to dismiss and sweep everything under the rug. Yes. Because the guy was like a serial liar, pretty much. You're good at this. We've never spoken, but that's exactly what happened. And by the way, somebody tweeted, it was a major blue checkmark person on Twitter said, oh man, the NBA is going to be really upset when this Netflix special comes out. And I said, you're still not understanding. The NBA is fine with this. Tom gets a kick out of me because I do get animated about this. I think it's pretty <laughs> remarkable that we show an NBA referee was fixing games for four NBA seasons. And for some people, that's not enough. I mean, that's just crazy. So let's get into that documentary because- one of the things that in the preview that we get is we get Baba, we got Tommy Martino and Tim Donaghy, the three Cardinal O'Hara co-conspirators in this scheme. And we have several NBA referees from Cardinal O'Hara, including Ed Malloy and Joey Crawford and Duke Callahan and Tim Donaghy, four NBA referees from the same high school. But that's beside the point. These three co-conspirators in this documentary and in interviews I've noticed – that the director or producer is saying that they offer three conflicting testimonials about how they carried this out. And my question to you is, does that mean that they understand that Tim Donaghy's full of shit most of the time? Then I wonder, but they're keeping him as the face of this thing. It seems like they're almost going to run with his side of the story. And it doesn't make me feel confident that they're going to get to the bottom of it if they didn't even read your book. Didn't even read it. People are going to think Tom and I spoke about this before we were on this interview here. But Tom, you're very intuitive because that's my take too. And here's the thing. They actually say in the IMDB description that all three stories don't align as if there's no objective truth. <laughs> there are betting lines. There are betting data. You can actually look at this stuff. Assume that Martino's a pathological liar. Assume that Batista is whatever. It doesn't matter. There are certain things that are objective truths. We're either speaking right now or we're not. That's what's driving me crazy about this story. People aren't even willing to do that. They go, well, we don't know. And it's an interesting story. And I'm sure you're going to hear about mob, mob, mob. Everyone loves the mob angle, which, by the way, the extent of mob involved in this story would be as if Tom or Sean happened to hear about this story like many people did by 0607 and we were copying the bets. That's the extent of mob involvement in the story. But man, the media just loves it. It's in the description. So, Sean, you write this book, you break it down, you talk to the players involved, you talk to the feds, all that. At any point after the book is released, are you approached by anyone from the NBA saying, wow, you really uncovered some stuff. Can we pick your brain about any of this? No. And by the way, I mean this seriously. I get animated about this. I was surprised by a couple of things. First of all, I reached out to the NBA when I did the book. And I also reached out to the NBA Referees Association when I did the book. Mm -hmm. Because for people who don't know, the NBA commissioned a study called the Pedowitz Study. Larry Pedowitz, an attorney in New York, he actually was interviewed for Gaming the Game. He was very nice to me. But their investigation didn't have access to the three co-conspirators or to the FBI or their files. 
So by definition, the report could only do so much. Yeah. I reached out to them. And in fact, one of the uh, things at the end of Game in the Game is suggestions for things that the NBA should be doing to make sure this doesn't happen again. For instance, monitoring betting lines. I don't know if this is still possible. I have to believe it is. Don Best keeps access to all of the main betting lines. You can actually track it. And that's what I, one of the things that I do in the appendix of Game in the Game. As I said earlier to Tom, ignore what Batista and Martino say. Just watch the betting lines. You can tell a lot just by betting line movements. And of course, I actually had Batista's laptop, so I actually had the betting records and I actually show people in the book what he was betting. So even if you don't have access to that, the betting lines are public. And the NBA didn't do any of that. What was their response when you reached out to them saying, I'm writing this book, I've talked to such and such and so and so? They never even responded. David Stern was asked during an all-star game about the book, and he dismissed it and said, oh, well, that's the word of an ex-con or a felon or whatever. He painted it as like Batista's word or whatever. Henry Abbott asked at a press conference of David Stern, like, hey, there's a book out <laughs> and it talks about very in detail about the betting. And are you sure? How confident are you that actually Tim Donnie didn't fix games? And David Stern essentially said, I keep getting asked about a convicted felon. And I guess there's another tome of lies and falsehoods, cataloging his misdeeds. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you read this book, because it's a must read for any NBA fan or someone who's just into true crime or gambling, all of it, it's a fascinating read. And the fact is, is that you get to know Jimmy Batista pretty well in this story. But one of the things that Tim Donaghy does in his book is he paints Jimmy Batista as this like high rolling flashy guy, this mobster almost that's like driving like a Corvette out there or something like that. But what does he actually drive, Sean? Well, at the time, and I actually do this in detail because it was on purpose. He was driving a really old beat up minivan and he dressed (laughs) like a slob. And he would tell you that was on purpose. He didn't want anyone to know what he was doing. Because he's smart. <laughs> All of his neighbors knew that, oh, he's Jimmy. He's got three kids. And this is what they do. He sees them at the school bus stop every day. They had no idea what was happening in his office. You know, Sean, the first giveaway was when you said they'd go meet at the Denny's. And I was like, at the Denny's? <laughs> Look, don't forget, I didn't know this world. So when you meet them, you would never know, wait, this is what you do for a living. And you control that kind of money. They're totally nondescript guys. All right. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is, What is the claim that Tim Donaghy does that just drives you nuts? That even to this day, you're expecting in this documentary, Tim is going to say something and it's going to be a falsehood or a lie made up that just drives you nuts. That you've seen on his car wash that he does seemingly every year through the local radio stations to talk about his latest project. What is the thing that drives you crazy the most? It's hard picking one. But the biggest one is that the mob made him bet during the 06, 07 season. And that's so demonstrably false because he argues that he was trying to stop gambling with Jack and Cannon. And until Jimmy Batista, don't forget, see, the public forgets this. He describes Tommy Martino and Jimmy Batista as Gambino crime family members or associates, depending on what interview you're listening to. Okay. These are guys he's known forever. Okay. And the media goes, oh, wow, that's terrible. You, did you feel for your life? Anyway, so he says that, but for the Gambino crime family visiting him in December of 06, he was going to stop gambling. And that he was relieved that when Batista went into drug rehab, he was addicted to prescription pills, he goes in drug rehab in March of 2007. According to Donaghy, he was relieved that he no longer had to bet. Well, again, ignore Sean Patrick Griffin and Game in the Game. You can look at the public record. All the people who pleaded guilty, including Donaghy, 
their plea deals. And by the way, when I say all the people, Donaghy, Martino, Pete Ruggieri, other pro gamblers, they're through April, not March. And the reason is because when Batista goes into drug rehab, Pete Ruggieri takes over the scheme. But the betting lines by 07 are flying all over the place. The word is out that the games are being fixed. So everyone's just copying the bets, not just pro gamblers. The whole betting world was paying attention to this. So they only bet a handful of games. And Ruggieri, not Donaghy for sure, not the NBA, not the FBI, Pete Ruggieri shuts the scheme down. (laughs) And then what happens, since Amin is going to ask this next, Donaghy begs Martino for one more game. <laughs> this is the guy who's telling everyone else, A, he didn't want to be doing this in the first place, and that the mob was doing it. He actually was begging for more games way after Batista went into road grab. And by the way, there's a footnote to this. The reason he switched from Jack Cannon to Batista was because he said that Cannon wasn't paying him money. He starts betting with Batista. Well, at a certain point, he starts betting again with Cannon. So for a stretch of the 06-07 season, he's actually been with Cannon and with Batista. But according to him, he was only doing this because he was fearful of the Gambino crime family. All right. So the other side of this is, as he throws the Gambino's crime family name in this thing left and right, it's not reprisal, but is there any reaction from the mob of like, whoa, slow down. Like some guys with Italian names are putting bets down and now all of a sudden we're getting pulled into what could be a you know a massive FBI investigation. I don't know about that. I have no idea. I know the FBI guys thought it was hilarious, but you know, I don't know what the actual mobsters themselves think about this. And by the way, Tim Donnie loves talking about the supervisor of the unit, not of the investigation. I was just going to ask you about this. Yes. The investigation was run by Special Agent Paul Harris with his colleague, Jerry Conrad. Most people have never heard their names unless they read Game in the Game. In the public, all you hear about is Phil Scala. Phil Scala housed the unit that ran the investigation. For reasons I can only imagine he wrote the foreword to Donaghy's book. And ever since then, Donaghy has been saying, well, Phil Skella says, I told the truth, I told the truth. Well, on my website, there's an entire section of Tim Donaghy debunking going on. And a lot of it is Phil Skella ever since 2009 debunking Donaghy's claims. Because after Donaghy got out of prison, his story got even more ridiculous. Even Scala couldn't support it. Why did he do the foreword? Well, I don't know what's going to air in that Netflix special. I know that question was asked. So let's hope we get an answer to that. I have my suspicions. Phil is interviewed in this story, I believe. And so is Tim Donaghy's ex-wife. Mm-hmm. Who are you most interested to hear from in this documentary, assuming they get everybody involved? That's the question. If you were part of this project, who would you most want to interview about this scandal? Well, Batista, only because the public really hasn't heard of him other than Game of the Game. But see, my fear is I got a sense of what they're going to look for. Well, with Kim Donaghy, I don't need to hear about the personal tumult in the household. It was bad marriage. Okay, whatever. People don't know. She actually was writing a book about her story. And for whatever reason, it never came out. If she could detail, and maybe she does in this documentary, her take on what was happening during the scandal, because she had a very good feel of things that were going on. So let's see what, what she says. Put it this way. If they ask her about things like the mob being involved or whatever, you know, that would be helpful. Do you think that another Tim Donaghy is possible in 2022? Yes. You and I are in the same sort of line of work with this. We're all hoping that legalized sports gambling, because there's never been more eyes on this, never more data collected. We're all hoping that that's less likely. And we also hope that the NBA really did learn from the Donaghy scandal. This is the problem. And this goes to Amin's question earlier. 
they were not receptive at all to what I was doing. And I was not looking for gotcha. I really was trying to figure out what happened and trying to help them to create mechanisms that this wouldn't happen again. And they just pretended it didn't happen. And so we're all relying on the NBA internally doing things that we hope they're doing, but we don't know. And that's a problem. So I can't say that it wouldn't happen again. The other thing too is, and I know Tom knows this, maybe your listeners don't, don't forget the way that Donaghy was doing this was calling technically correct calls. So even if you've got an NBA auditor in the arena, which they even did during the scandal, they're not going to pick up on calls that are technically correct. Mm-hmm. And Donaghy was known for calling a lot of calls and calling those noteworthy oddball technically correct calls. So that's not necessarily going to get flagged today unless I'm missing something. You mentioned earlier you approached the NBA. You also approached the NBA Refs Association, which a lot of people don't know. That's a completely separate entity. Yes. It works in tandem with the NBA, but is not governed by the NBA. What was their response? The same as the NBA. No response. They literally don't even humor a response. Wow. And by the way, you can make fun of me, but I honest to goodness thought I was going to have a conversation with them. (laughs) Yeah. It's the scene from Blazing Saddles where Cleavon Little goes out on the town and everyone just kind of cusses him out. He comes back and Gene Wilder says, what did you expect? Welcome, marry my daughter. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, you know what? This is unrelated, but years ago, I was doing research on stock fraud and I contacted, there's a thing called NASDR. It's NASDAQ's research arm. And I wanted to work with them. I was trying to get a grant on stock fraud. Now, this one, I actually did get a response. And the guy said, Are you crazy? Why would we fund people exposing fraud in the market? <laughs> Oh my God. And I thought I was helping. Are you going to be with a glass of wine on the couch waiting for August 30th? Are you not going to watch it? Like, what is your game plan going into August 30th? Well, first of all, I have to get Netflix because I don't watch television. a <laughs> boy. It's a waste of money. <laughs> so I'm just too busy. No, but I'll absolutely watch it. Because here's the thing. This is similar to my library. If you look at my library, it's not half, but like probably 10 or 20% of my books are total nonsense. But I have to have them, especially in organized crime. It's mythology dominates the literature. Right. So I have to know why people think what they think before I can debunk the claims. So I'm going to watch this for no other reason. Okay, why is my neighbor going to say X, Y, and Z tomorrow? I at least need to know what people are thinking. Can you just, in a quick takeaway for the audience, when people ask you, did Donaghy fix games? Your answer is what? All of the evidence, absolutely overwhelming evidence, points to Donaghy fixing games. And I do that in the book. I show the betting lines, the betting records, all of the pro gamblers. The only reason they were betting on the games were because they were being fixed. They weren't betting on other referees' games. They were only betting on Donaghy games for four seasons. There's a reason for that. If they could have made money on other referees' games, they would have. There are a million ways you can do this. Was he truly the only one? Yes. And by the way, I'm hoping the Netflix special gets into this. My understanding is that they're also going to talk about Scott Foster. And I think the phone calls between Donaghy and Foster have been misinterpreted over the last 10 years. I actually have the phone calls. Anyone who does this line of work, you actually get the call logs. Well, look, maybe he was fixing games too. I don't think so. One of two things is more likely. Either he was copying the bets on Donaghy's games to make money, which by the way, that's bad enough, but that's not him fixing games. Or he was giving Donaghy information that might help his bets. 
But that's a separate matter from him fixing games, which is what people keep alleging because they see the ridiculous number of phone calls. Right, because there's a difference in insider information, which is what that would be, an actual fixing and manipulating of the results. Exactly. And by the way, I mean, you don't know this, but with regard to inside information, Donaghy's argument was, I had inside information. I didn't need to do anything on the court. Well, the problem with that is he also says that he would make the calls to Batista or Martino from the bowels of the arena before the game. Well, you can only manipulate markets overseas if you were getting the picks the night before. So that's why Batista said to him when they got hooked up, you got to let me know the night before. Right. There are a million ways to do this. And there's been so many examples of Tim Donaghy saying, well, this referee hates this coach. And so I remember this one night in Chicago, I told the guys to bet against this. It's just factually incorrect. Yes, yes. Either that team didn't play in that night or the lines didn't match up with what he was saying. Yes, yes. I teed up Allen Iverson here and then I gave Shaq two quick fouls here and like it doesn't add up. All these things more often than not are just fabricated or just misremembered. So I don't know how people can trust his testimony in a documentary or in a book or in a podcast. But they do. That's the weird part. Because they want to hear it. They love his story. That's the problem. It's confirmation bias. He's saying something they want to hear. I always say to people, what could he possibly say on a radio show or a podcast or TV that would get you to go, I don't know about that. If he said he made no money, or if he made a bazillion dollars, at what point would you go, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But for some reason, nothing has worked. Yeah. The people still believe in the Scott Foster angle. And I mean, it is still really fishy. It is still really odd that that call log, you say you have the calls. Do you mean you have just like the, the times of the calls? Or do you- exactly. Yeah. Okay. I don't have transcripts of the actual conversations. I just have the timestamps. I was just going to say, no, no, no. so your leading theory on that is that he was either telling him of the bet or just having a friendly phone call? Well, no, no, no. I said, or he's greasing him for information. That's right, yeah. Either he's giving him inside info or he's just figuring out what the bet is so he could put down some money to him. I was putting it in there that Sean believes that he was just giving a phone call to his friend. They're great friends. (laughs) How's it going? How you been? How's Philly? Isn't that a leading defense for Tim Downey? That look, we've been friends for decades. Yeah, that is what he says. Yeah. I know the guy for a long time. Like, I'm not allowed to call my buddy before and after every game. <laughs> but, and it's not just that. If you look at the call logs, it's not just calling him. It's just this weird, crazy pattern. Like, call for a minute, then a minute. Like, it's weird. We're talking hundreds of calls here. I mean, it was unbelievable. Jesus. Is there any reason that you came across in your reporting, in your research, why the NBA didn't pursue the Scott Foster phone calls more than what meets the eye? Like (laughs) if I'm the NBA and I find out that there might be a rogue referee, maybe he's not rogue, but he is calling another longtime referee a lot. Don't you want to investigate that or get to the bottom of that? And maybe the NBA did and they just found nothing. What do you make of that? Well, wait, there's an alternative explanation too. Maybe they did and they did find something and we don't know about it and they covered it up. For the conspiracy theorists out there, that's not unreasonable. There is a chance that they did investigate Foster and realized he was betting on Donaghy's games with him or that he was giving him inside information on his games. And that's what I was going to say, by the way. Batista did bet on Foster's games. And they were losers and they stopped betting them. It was either five or seven games where Batista actually bet because of Donaghy telling him to bet on Scott Foster's games, but they were losers. 
And again, everybody who cooperated with the feds agrees on that story. And Batista didn't cooperate with the feds, but he told me that before I even got access to all the cooperating of informers. So everyone agrees that there were a handful of bets on Scott Foster's games and they were losers and they stopped taking them. So Scott Foster just wasn't as naturally gifted as Tim Donaghy. He won the king. Or Foster really was just giving information and was not going to actually do something on the court, whereas Donaghy was clearly willing to do that. The other thing that made Donaghy stick out were the splits. Typically, a referee splits are fairly even between team A and team B. Donaghy's splits were ridiculous. So if normally you would have a split of 14, 10, you know, 15, 11, his were, you know, 20 to five. I mean, they were ridiculous. Well, Sean, we can't wait to have you back on once we all watch this and off air. I can just give you my Netflix password. You don't even have to pay. No, 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 no. Don't do that. They're cracking down on that. Tom. I know. I know. I know. They're cracking down. You can't say that on air, man. You can expense it. Yeah. With the Citadel. Tom, this is what you do. <laughs> you got to tell him you'll do it. We got to give it to him in code. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. My brother Chuck. I do have a brother Chuck. I mean, in Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. Sean, tell people if they want to find not just your book, Gaming the Game, but also your writings on your website, all of the research that you've laid out there, kind of like a postscript, where can they find all of your work on Tim Donaghy? SeanPatrickGriffin.net or .com. Sean is S-E-A-N and Griffin is G-R-I-F-F-I-N, SeanPatrickGriffin.net. And on Twitter, I am S-P-G author. I try and post as much as I can about this. People think I'm obsessed with this. I'm not obsessed, but it is for opportunity to actually correct the record. So whenever something like this pops up, yes, I get animated and I try and help out. And it's not trolling. I'm trying to actually tell people, look, there is an objective record here. Sean, I'll say it. Us here, we're obsessed, all right. We're obsessed with the truth. And every time you bring the truth, I am not ashamed to say I'm obsessed with the truth. I don't want to be obsessed with lies or falsehoods. I want to know that what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing is factual and not just the fancies of some felon or or otherwise. So whether you call it an obsession or not, I will say for you, I'm obsessed. So thank you. Patrick Beverly. So his media game, it's strong. The brand is growing. Is it? Isn't it? He did the tour through Bristol. And then he responded to one of Kevin Durant's tweets earlier and said, y'all can sit and don't say nothing, but that ain't cool. It's dudes with families out here who haven't got a job because of this KD shit. And to be on and off ain't cool. Blessing gang. Prayer emojis, basketball emoji. To which Kevin Durant responded, hashtag blame KD. <laughs> and he goes, Patrick Beverly, damn gang, who said I was talking about you? Didn't he literally just say KD in his tweet? Sure did, Tom. Because of this KD shit. I'm, we're not pulling that out of context. So Patrick Beverly says, I'm speaking of how it was done. Both sides need to keep that private, but noted, writing on a piece of paper emoji. Anyone else chime in? 
in the basketball world, players wise? Isaiah Thomas. Which one? Oh, the new Isaiah Thomas. Former Charlotte Hornet Isaiah Thomas. Former Charlotte Hornet Isaiah Thomas chimed in. That's how everybody remembers him. Yeah, exactly. He hit us with, finally, LOL. Can we sign now, LOL? <laughs> so that's what Pat Bev was talking about, right? And the Shanghai Sharks hit him back. We've been trying to call you for weeks, bro. Oh, man. It's funny. Uh, I don't think that's the actual Shanghai Sharks account, by the way. Just want to throw that out there. Keep your third eye open. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. 